I, I've been walking around with the communion. No, we're not sharing communion this morning. I recognize it's not Easter. Diane's like, you know, it's not Easter. I know, it's not Easter. I was told when I first started preaching that you probably ought to end every message that you preach anyway at, at Easter, right? You, you end it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven. So wherever, so I'm just gonna go with that this morning. So we're not sharing communion. I am in fact holding this cup, but I wanna talk about it this morning. Um, and it's not Easter, I know that. Okay, so let's, let's get started. I don't know about you, this was my memory growing up. From the very earliest stages, I don't know when they came out with these things, um, but as soon as I remember taking communion, the Eucharist, it was in these nifty little communion sets. Um, Might have had, and if I recall, these smash flat, styrofoamy kind of sweet little wafers, right, that would come around eventually. Maybe I'd go to a church where they would put some unleavened crackers, actually, and they would pass those around. But I remember the little sweet wafers. I was told they were sweet because they're supposed to remind you of milk and honey. And as a kid, I was like, oh, whatever, and I, I kind of liked them. <laughs> um, but I tell you, my favorite part of communion was, was the cup. Um, loved, loved licking every last drop of that grape juice. Um, to this day, I still love the grape juice on the way home. From communion, my thought is, I, I probably shouldn't, have, it's not on Jesus, it's like, can we stop at the store and get some grape juice? <laughs> I, right, and I don't know about you, but, but when I was a kid, I, I would get stink eye from mom and dad if I was like, if they heard me slurp. Like, I, I wanted to get every last drop of that grape juice out of that little tiny cup. Was it just me? Or can, can anybody admit to this? Not a single person. Oh, one person, thank you, appreciate that. So this message is going to mean something to somebody. Good, 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 good. Um, I want to hereby challenge anybody giving anybody stink eye for slurping at the communion cup. My, I, my feeling, and this is, this, is my, this is my thesis for my message this morning, I think God is honored when we slurp down to the last drop of the communion cup. I, I think God smiles when he sees his children do that or when he sees his grown-up children do that. Um, scripture backs me up on this. Psalm 34, 8, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And so I was growing up and I was told, this is the body and blood of Christ. Wow, he tastes good, right? Jesus tastes good. And I, I don't know if I formulated those thoughts as a little kid, but now I think back, I kind of think that was the idea. That was God's idea. It wasn't the pastor's idea. I think that was God's idea, that there would just be this transference of something physical to something spiritual. In Psalm 34, God had just delivered David from King Abimelech, and David wanted everyone to know just how good God is. Now, and parents know this, right? And, and my wife knows this too. Just taste it. Just taste it. It's like, oh, no, that looks horrible. I don't want to taste it. Just taste it, and you'll find out if it's good or bad, right? right? Parents, they, they, they understand this. To truly, to truly know or understand something, you got to try it, right? And with food, you got to eat it. And the kid will go, oh, I taste it. No, you didn't. You barely stick your tongue on it, and then you went, oh, and contortions, contortions. And it's like, you did not taste it. You already decided that you didn't want to taste it. And you know, and I get a, the impression a lot of unchurched, I have a feeling they look at us 
and someone tells them, well, just taste it, just try it. And they're like, nope, 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 nope. You did not taste it. See, they got this idea that we're going to taste horrible. Right? I don't know how that came about. I do know how that came about. We're going to get to that. You got to try it, right? You got to eat it. Or this from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says this. Excuse me, this is from, oh, man, I'm going to jump to. This is Hebrews. No, this is 1 Peter. I'm going to use 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you wanted to, you could take that last line that I highlighted there, and that's kind of a recap of all of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Right? You could take that line and stick it at the very top and say, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, grow up. Right? Stop doing silly things. Right? Love each other. Truly love each other. Now that you've seen and tasted, there's no excuse for going back. Now that you've seen and tasted. The bottom line in this passage and many other passages, biblical writers are making a point about God and faith. Biblical spirituality is a whole body experience, right? It's something to be lived. It's not something that remains up in our head in statements of faith, proclamations, beliefs, words, right? It cannot be restricted to those things only. It has to be experienced. You got to taste it. You got to taste it. And again, I I recognize it. It starts in the mind. It starts in our will. Um, But unless it touches our our entire life, our, our going about our daily lives life. And unless it touches the daily going about life life of our neighbors, it's a pointless faith. The book of James says it's a dead faith. It's words that just like smoke, just they're just, they're gone. In fact, from the very beginning, the Israelite faith, and I I, I think God, this this was on purpose, the Israelite faith was going to be an incredibly physical faith, right? It wasn't going to be about words and ideas. It was going to be about action, right? Your faith will be shown by the way the things that you do, not by what you say or what you say you believe. It simply won't matter, right? You will be judged by the physicalness of your life. Are you doing things with this body that God gave you to bless him and to bless your neighbors and to bless his creation? I want to start with the first Passover, And again, we're just looking at just how incredibly physical the Jewish faith was. First thing that you would do at the Passover is you would choose a lamb. This is from Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. It says this, tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day, this is important to remember, on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Right right there at the very beginning, love God and love your neighbor. (laughs) Having taken into account the number of people that are there, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defects, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. So on the 10th day, you bring a sheep home. Right? You bring it home. And your kids give it a name, and they get to know it. Right? Dad, mom, they know what's coming, but they know this is an incredibly valuable thing. 
And so don't try to hide it. It's not, it's not something that's brushed under the rug. It's, it's something that's dealt face-to-face, even with the kids. Four days later, slaughter it. This was no just say you're sorry and all is good, right? That, that wasn't a part of the Jewish faith. No child would ever forget the very real life and death consequences of the decisions that we make in life, right, to choose life or death after watching this done every year. Right? Dad goes out, brings home a lamb. Four days we get to know it, and then Dad slaughters it. That, that's, that's sin in our life, right? No child could ever forget that. Now, just be super clear on this. This is a sacrificial killing. All right, the celebration of Passover involves a sacrifice. A life was given or sacrificed so that others might live. So number one, I just kind of keep this in the back of your mind. It is a sacrifice. The third step after you've chosen the lamb, after you've slaughtered the lamb, is to spread the lamb, the blood of the lamb, on the home. This in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 says, Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And again, why spread the blood of the lamb on the sides and tops of the door a few verses down? God explains why. If you didn't catch Douglas explaining it. Verse 12 says, On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both animals, of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So, okay, so, so this is a very, very physical sign, right? You are staining the sides of your house, right? right? You put blood on that wood, and the wood's going to soak it in, and it's, you've stained it. It's going to be there for a while. It's not like, well, 4th of July is over, pull down the flag, right? You are making a statement, and it's a somewhat permanent statement on your home. This is who we are. Right? This is who we stand for in a very, very physical way. It's not kind of like wearing a cross around your neck, and sometimes it's under your T-shirt, sometimes it's out, and some people think, well, it's just jewelry, and some people think, well, they must be a Christian. Right? You got blood on the sides of your door, right? You have told everybody who you are and who you stand for. This was a sacrifice that had the power of life and death. It was no ordinary sacrifice. And then the fourth step, usually forgotten, but arguably the most important step. If the words of Jesus are any indication, it says this in Exodus 12, verses 8 and 9, that same night they are to eat the meat, roast it over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. And then here's what Jesus said quite 1,500 years later, Jesus said to them, this is in John chapter 6, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And so the Passover celebration, it, it was a sacrifice, and we can never forget that idea. It was a sacrifice. But equally important, it was a feast. Right? It was a feast, Passover celebration. It wasn't completed by the death of the lamb. It's completed by the eating of its flesh. Five times the Bible states that they must eat the lamb. Five times it emphasizes that this is a sacrificial meal. 
right? This is a feast where we gather together, a communal kind of thing. So you eat the flesh of the sacrifice that had been killed on your behalf. You take in that love and that gift. And you can't have it unless you take it in. Christ made that very, very clear. I'm not an idea. I am a way of life. I am not a way of life. I am life. And you have to have me in you to experience life or you will experience nothing but death. I'm not giving you something. I am something. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And the last step, step five, you had to repeat everything once a year, every year. Choose the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, spread the blood of the lamb, eat the lamb, and do it all again next year. Year after year after year. This is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24, 25. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And so in addition to being a sacrifice and a feast, the annual Passover celebration was also a reminder of what God had done for the people. Now here's the point of all this. In case you missed it, when I first started, the original Passover and the annual celebration of Passover were both intensely physical. It wasn't... It, you weren't making statements, I agree, I vote for this. I, you know, it, it was you voted with your body. You voted with your entire life. That was the only acceptable way to express what you believed. You voted, you expressed yourself with your life, what you did and what you didn't do with your life. You could not have experienced this annual event and ever forgotten that sin had very real life and death consequences. This was not the lofty realm of ideas intellectual proclamations. In your physical acts, in your physical life, this is who I am and this is who I represent. So we have the, the first annual, the annual, the first Passover. And within that chapter 12, and you can go home, check this out, kind of dig into a little bit about for yourselves. And, and within chapter 12 and chapter 13, you have not only this is what you're to do tonight, but also this is what you're to do every year from here on out. And there's a couple subtle differences, right? So you have that original event, then you have the instructions to do it every year, and then you have 1,500 years past, and then you have the New Testament. So we have to understand that the way God explains the Passover and the way that it's described is kind of different. Some similarities, some differences between then, the book of Exodus, and the time of Jesus in the New Testament when he does the Last Supper, and we, we share in that, Right? couple key differences, and, and these are just the differences that, that, that are important for us this morning. Um, because times change. Again, 15 centuries have passed since the original set of instructions, the original event. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that, well, things change. Liturgies are added. Part of the liturgies were actually subtracted, right? Um, expanded, contracted, added, taken away. Um, for example... The spreading of the blood on the doorposts. I, apparently that continued for a while, and they stopped doing it. I'll, if I had more time this week, I would have looked into that one. I don't know why. They, they just stopped doing it. Eating of the Passover lamb remained, but it was expanded. Lots of explanations, new rites, new rituals, the, 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 cups of, the four cups of wine, right? We don't read that in the Exodus, but by the time we get to Jesus, where did these cups of wine come from? 1,500 years had passed, and, and what they were doing is... I'm going to get to that part. Right? Hold on. 
But easily one of the biggest changes between the Exodus descriptions and Jesus' time was the presence of a temple. Right? During those original instructions, until a temple was built, they did it one way. But once that temple got built, things changed. Right? In the original Exodus and in the instructions for the annual celebration, right, the lambs were sacrificed in the homes of the Israelites. Dad, you were the priest. Right, but you had that, <laughs> that was taken away in chapter 32 of Exodus, right? When they all bowed down and worshiped a calf, and God sent some people through the crowd to kill everybody who had worshiped, bowed down, and the people that didn't hesitate were the Levites. They obeyed God, even if it meant slaying their own families. And God honored them and made them the priests of Israel. Dad, you lost, you lost it there. And so by the time of Jesus and the temple, right, it had to be sacrificed. Your lamb had to be sacrificed in the temple, had to be sacrificed by a Levitical priest, and it had to be eaten in Jerusalem. This is all laid down, verses 5 through 7 in Deuteronomy 16. It says this, You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose. So this is in the future. Right? It's still in the home, but in the future... He's going to choose a place, a dwelling place for his name. And there you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will eventually choose. And here's the reason I include this detail about the temple. It's easy to imagine, right? Okay, whew, dad's like, oh, I don't have to kill the thing at home anymore, right? The kids don't have to see that. It, it all kind of gets exported to the temple, and, and, and everyone's thinking, oh, well, that got rid of all the blood, all the physicalness of it. No, 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 not at all, right? So instead of just seeing one sacrifice in your home, with this new law, once that temple was built, your whole family had to go to Jerusalem at Passover, and you didn't experience just one sacrifice. You watched approximately a quarter million lamb about. The, the estimates vary for about a hair over two million people. I know you Washingtonians, like, right? You got no problem. We kill. We got, got one sitting in the freezer. No problem. Um, and I get that. <laughs> but I don't even think we up here in the Pacific Northwest or you all, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a we. I, I'm, I'm getting there. You all, for now, in the Pacific Northwest, I, I don't think anyone has ever witnessed a quarter million animals being, the amount of blood, the smell, the sight, the sounds. Once again, if you experienced this, you weren't at home, you were at temple, you thought, oh, don't have to experience, no, right? It was still incredibly physical. Again, you could not go to Jerusalem every year and ever forget that your Choices, they had consequences. They had life and death consequences. Things die when you sin. And you could never forget that after experiencing... The, this is, this is, this is a, a, a quote from Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian who was actually a priest. He writes this. So these high priests, upon the coming of the feast, which is called the Passover, when they slay their sacrifices from the ninth hour to the eleventh hour, so that... So that a company of no less than 10 belongs to every sacrifice. You, like, like the instruction said, you don't do it by yourself. You, you need to bring in, in order to consume an entire lamb, unless you got like 18, 19 kids, you need to bring in all the neighbors because you have to eat all of the lamb. 
The question comes up, what if you don't like lamb? You're going to be dead in the morning. That was it. You had to consume the lamb. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ says, you have to consume me, and if you don't, you what? You die. So that a company of no less than 10 belongs to every sacrifice. Many of us are 20 in a company, so it'd be like 20 people per lamb. Found that the number of sacrifices was about 256,500 upon the allowance of no more than 10 that feast together amounts to about 2,700,200 people. Again, a little bit exaggerated, maybe, but it is staggering. And staggering. Faith was more than just words and statements of belief. It was intensely physical. Now, there's one other key difference between the Old Testament and Jesus' time that we need to mention. And it's this, a, a very unique form of participation developed. And at the beginning, it wasn't there, and we assume it was there, but it really developed over time. Um, the ancient rabbis began to see the, 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 the Passover celebration as more than a reminder of a past event. Like, we remember when the Chargers won a football game, and we go, ooh, we celebrate that time, right? And it's a fading, fading memory. And, and this is what bothered the rabbis. It was somewhat of a fading memory, and they were just like, do you remember? Do you, do you, do you remember? Do you remember? And it was a very intellectual remember. You know, in Deuteronomy, you ask the kid one question, or the kid's supposed to ask you one question. What does this ceremony mean to you? And then you go and explain very short explanation, what the deal was. But over time, they begin to see the celebration as more than a past event. They begin to see it as a way of participating in the actual first exodus, kind of vicariously, kind of like role-playing, but in a very, very intense kind of fashion. Again, they, it, it, they deliberately took it out of the head and kind of brought it into the body. Now you're going to physically, physically participate in the exodus. Now, here's one of the key passages that the rabbis latched on to to bring about the past into the present. This is from chapter 13 of Exodus. Chapter 12 really was the, the explanation of, of the Passover and then the instruction, but chapter 13 is, is kind of driving at, there's a ceremony about um, uh, 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 the firstborn, which is kind of part of the Passover celebration. Um, and in those instructions, it says this. This is this incredible line. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. Exodus chapter 13, it says, On that day, and we read this earlier, and I don't know if you caught this. On that day, tell your son. And this is what the rabbis caught on to. And again, like, <laughs> I didn't even notice it. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That's a very interesting way to phrase that. And the rabbis caught on to that and said, you know, there's something God's, there's something on that, there's something in that. Right? Because dad, this is centuries later, you weren't there, but he says, no, when I was brought out. And out of this passage, the rabbis declared this, in every generation, a man must regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. Right? That's the new law. You must consider yourself as if you yourself came out. Not, this is not a celebration about grandpa doing it. You must consider the fact, <laughs> new fact, weird fact, you were there. You, you were there. 
The goal changed from talking about the Exodus to re-experiencing the Exodus themselves every year. So in addition to asking, what does the ceremony mean to you? A whole bunch of more questions were added, right? Why is this night any different from any of the other nights? Why are we eating the bitter herbs? What about, you know, the whole, there's a whole list of questions. I'm not Jewish, but I understand there's a whole lot was added. Again, cups were added. A whole bunch of stuff was added to carry more details of the story, right? Does that make sense? Right, all of these details, the rabbis continue to add details. I don't know if they were actually true or not, but they begin to add, they, they continue to add these details so that it became not just a 10-minute discussion, but a whole experience, right? Light, sound, smell, action, I mean, the whole, the whole nine yards. Again, all this was an effort to keep the faith from becoming an idea on a book, in a book on somebody's shelf in some museum or on somebody's coffee table. And here's my favorite, the very next verse, it says this, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. The idea being, if you keep something right between your eyes, right, and you're walking around, right, you can't live life without forgetting about this. And so they would literally stuck a little leather box and they would put scripture. They took this verse, maybe a hair far. Here's a picture. Check this out. It's called phylactery. They would one leather box and they'd strap it to their head and another one, a whole bunch of straps and, and they'd have another one on their arm because it says, you know, on your forehead and on your arms. The idea, I think, being maybe not this, but the idea being that if this, this, you know, you've got something right here as you're walking around, you've got something attached to your hands, you literally physically can't live your life without thinking about God. It becomes physically, literally impossible. Now, to this day, they only do this apparently during morning prayers. They don't don't run around all day like this. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not Jewish. Bottom line, by the time of Jesus, the Passover celebration had become much more than a sacrifice and a feast or even a, a remembrance. It had become a memorial, which is a little bit more than just simply a reminder. In fact, I had to look up the difference between a funeral and a memorial service. Turns out, I should probably know this, a memorial service is a, is a lot more participatory, right? In the memorial service, celebrants are encouraged to vicariously experience the life of the deceased and to come to an agreement that they would live a life, a better life, right, that honored and reflected the life of the deceased. And so the, the, the Passover literally became a participatory kind of thing and not just, a, oh, yeah, Grandpa died during that event, right? We, we died to sin during that event. We, we experienced all of this. So how do we take all this biblical physicalness of the salvation story and <laughs> make it fit into this. It, you know, I, I compare everything I've just presented to you and I, and I look at this and I say, did, did we miss the boat? Did we? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. I want to show you something. Um, this is from the Apostle 12, from the Apostle Paul <laughs> in Romans 12, verse 1. And I want you to take everything that we've discussed about the sacrifice and the physicalness and read these familiar words one more time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your true and proper worship. What he's saying is live your life as if you had a big old sign on it. Right, right? Maybe, maybe one of these, maybe some blood on your door. Right? Live your life in a way that serves as a sign. Right? Live your life in such a physical manner that no one could ever question your identity or to whom you belong. It's like wearing the phylacteries or, or, or taking the rabbi's injunction seriously, right? Every, every person should consider themselves as if they themselves were actually there. We sang a song earlier, shine your light and let the whole world know. Right? That's a very physical thing. You, you, have, to go, you have to go do something amazing, something loving, gracious, forgiving, for that light to shine. In every generation, a man must regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. See, we're called not just to remember intellectually, but to actually experience the events ourselves as if they were happening in real time. And here's the, here, the add-on. Here's the part that we miss. Once we taste and see that the Lord is good, that's our call to make sure that others can taste and see that the Lord is good to allow others to experience the exodus in real time. That's our call, right? We're, we're, we're called to kind of recapitulate, recap the exodus event and lead people from death to life, to allow people to taste and see for themselves what the Israelites had experienced and what you all have experienced. But that take, you, you got to get physical, you got to get physical with your neighbors. You, you, can, you can wear the crosses around your neck, go to church every Sunday, pray, read your Bibles, but unless your neighbors can see your faith, the physicalness of it, I just want to challenge you with that thought. I'd like to tell you what to do. Or bow your heads. Father, your word challenges us. It comforts us, but it puts us on edge sometimes. Father, you seem to be saying that, that our faith can't be intellectual assent. It's got to be witnessed. Father, when it's witnessed, then other people can experience it in real time. Others can taste and see, get a really good taste, and see that you are good, you are faithful. Your promises never expire. You never forget. Father, thank you for all these things. In your son's name I pray. Amen.